Hey, I'm Daryl Etherington, and welcome to Found. I'm here with Jordan Crook, my co-host, and the ampersand in my brand name, which is a very important rule. I thought you were going to say the her to your hymns, but... I thought I was going to say that too, but that's given it... That's too much, and now you've spoiled it. Now everyone knows what this podcast about, what this episode is. I mean, were we trying to keep it from them? It's not a secret. No, it says it right in the the title. Yeah, they know (laughs) what it's not. But we want people to be patient and listen as we explain what found is, okay. because they all need reminders, and they might be new listeners. Okay. Welcome, new listeners. Found is a show from TechCrunch where every week we speak to a different founder, and we ask them lots of questions, all kinds of questions, basically whatever comes to mind, and they answer truthfully and honestly, and it is not at all like any other podcast where you hear entrepreneurship stories. And that's why it's exciting and fun. Right, Jordan? Oh, it's the best, yo. Like, unfiltered. I mean, not unedited, because that's important for everyone. But heavily edited. Very candid, open conversations about not just, like, the good stuff, but the hard stuff, the confusing stuff. It's pretty great. It is great. And this week is also great. Or especially great, it's also great. So we've got Hillary Coles, who is... The co-founder and the SVP of Branded Innovation at Hims and Hers. Really excited to have her here. I think that it's a great chat, as per always. But without further ado, let's get into it with Hillary. Hi, Hillary. Hey, how are you? Great. Thanks for joining us. I want to start off the show by just acknowledging that you're Canadian, so everyone knows that. We share that. Is that right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and Canadians, I we're everywhere. <laughs> and Jordan is constantly annoyed because I'll just bring it up. You know, it's the Canadian thing to do is in passing when you're just talking about like something going on, whether it's like movies or TV or whatever. And you're like, oh, this person's Canadian or that person's Canadian. And you just kind of mention it offhand. And I think we have on. to. We have yeah. to represent. We do. Yeah. I yeah. mean, do you? <laughs> I, I feel like. It's a, the Daryl thing to do, to just, like, bring up Canada as much as possible, whereas, like, actual Canadians are like, oh, we don't, we're just really nice Actual people. Canadians? I'm just saying, mean? like, okay, maybe the majority of Canadians don't feel the need to be, like, Canada, 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 but, like... I do wonder if there's something about, like, being transplanted to a different country where you have to be, like, and, and another thing. Yes. I still spell, like, favor, flavor, all of those with the U's. That's my... The correct way. Yeah, that's, that's the good. correct way. That's my like last holdout. That <laughs> even though I live in California, I'm still Canadian. <laughs> How are your stories and a boots? Yeah, do you do you say them? The most offensive ones I I, I hear are sorry and bag. I think I do a long a on oh, bag. Bag, uh, bag. Those are, those are the ones that I got in trouble. <laughs> Another one I moved for. I moved to the U.S. for business school uh, in Chicago, and the one that people used to tease me about a lot too is saying like I'm going to write an exam because all the Americans would be like, "Are you the teacher?" I'm like, no, you, you, <laughs> you sit it, you take it, all these like passive things. But that's what we said growing yeah. up. So those were those are the things I get. That one I don't know, but I grew up. It depends on where you grew up. I get. I grew up like right on the border uh, with Detroit, like in Windsor. So. A lot of that I get, although Jordan will be able to, to speak to this better than I can, because you can't really tell with your own thing. But like, yeah, you need somebody else to point it out. Yeah, yeah. But the Michiganders who came over, which is what they're actually <laughs> called, Michiganders, <laughs> would say like, sounds very Canadian too. Oh, like you sound like the people on TV. Like you sound like, 
like a newscaster or something. Like as if I was intentionally going out of my way to like achieve a regionless dialect or whatever. Like I, I was I and everybody around like in that area. Like it was like they had kind of like washed out. So it was a neutral accent or something. But Interesting. You just took all these inputs and... Daryl's not a great representation of Canada anyway because he's like not necessarily cheery or nice <laughs> and so, he doesn't have a strong accent so you might not even know if it wasn't for every five seconds him being like Canada Canada <laughs> I do think though Jordan that was a really good point I think that Canadians are polite I don't know that they're more nice than anybody else I think we're extremely polite I think moving to the Midwest, I was shocked by how nice everybody was. Like, you're the cashier at the grocery store is going to talk to you and ask you how things are going. That would never happen in Toronto. It's just, yeah. it's very. But is it grumpy, right? Because, like, I'm in Brooklyn, New York. So, like, our default is grumpy. But, well, people think of us as grumpy, but really we're just like <laughs> too concentrated around other people to, like, yeah. do anything like that, right? You're just like, want to stay in your bubble and people think that is grumpy there's a lot going on in your own bubble it's difficult whenever i travel back and forth from new york to florida where my mom lives like a really tiny community in florida everyone waves doesn't matter where you are or how many people you're walking by you must wave to the passerby not a natural action yeah Yeah. it's ridiculous (laughs) but i get in the habit and then i go back to new york and i'm waving at people and like they're (laughs) truly scared and then i go back to florida and it takes me a while to wave to people and they're like what a and it's like I can't. The transition time is very awkward. Jordan, I'm really imagining you as like like Belle from Beauty and the Beast, just going through the village yeah, in Brooklyn, yeah. I'm waving beast. to everybody. I'm Beast, and <laughs> Daryl is Beauty. But wow. Anyways, this is, why don't we talk about uh, something else? The best intro yeah. to found. <laughs> this is a nice start. You said no small talk, and we were Sorry, like, let's do small listeners. talk for 20 minutes. It was because at the essence of what found is all about. But we should let people know who you are, what you do, <laughs> and what company you co-founded. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my name is Hillary. I am Canadian, if it's not already abundantly clear. <laughs> and I co-founded Hims and Hers, which is a telemedicine company that treats a range of conditions from sexual wellness to mental health to prescription skincare. This is a huge question, and it's going to take a lot of explaining. But how did you get from there to there like how did you get from canada growing up in canada and then to founding a healthcare company in the united states to me that's a wild Not a journey. linear career progression yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is roundabout at best i would say i graduated from university of toronto and i did i went wanted to go into nonprofit and so i actually helped to start a canadian nonprofit called true patriot love And what we did there was really raise awareness and funds, obviously, for uh, military families and Mm -hmm. injured soldiers and who had been serving in Afghanistan. And at that point, it was um, we've been in the Afghanistan war for almost 10 years. The war was extremely politicized in in Canada, as I was, I think, in in a lot of countries. And Canadians already, as you know, well, Daryl, are kind of uncomfortable with being proud and being patriotic. And the problem with not showing any sort of support, especially monetarily, is that there were real gaps that existed that people weren't able to to receive. So an example would be if by some catastrophe you lost a limb in Afghanistan and you came back, the government could pay, the Canadian government does take good care of its people, can can pay to retrofit your car, but not if you have a motorcycle, for example, or Mm. a small car. It can't buy you 
a new car. Right. So those are the kind of gaps where there is essentially no, because no one expected this war to last this long. There is no, nothing in place for the family members. So, you know, the wives, kids whose parents were coming back um, or partners and kids who were coming back from the war with PTSD or, or long-standing trauma, there was really no support systems for them. And so I think that was the biggest takeaway I got from that was learning how much confidence and help and support can really change your outcome. And specifically what happened there was one of our most successful franchises was called the Expedition Series. And so we partnered Canadian CEOs with um, injured service members who needed to transition into the private sector. And then these CEOs would help them do that. And then in turn, we would go on this kind of insane adventure where soldiers generally felt more comfortable because they were always used to high degrees of ambiguity and, and not being in control. And so we, our first um, expedition was climbing a sister mountain, Mount Everest, wow. Nepal. And so... When you said the expeditions part, I was I didn't think you meant literally, but then... No, literally. Yeah. I was imagining like <laughs> camping, but like that's way yeah. more tense. No, I and I didn't really know I was going on this expedition until three months out and I'm through and through a city girl. So that was a fun <laughs> character building experience. Um, but it was really incredible to see how the work together, you know, for CEOs who are probably a little bit, a lot more privileged in their day-to-day -day lives and they're rarely challenged, especially physically, needed to be uncomfortable for a month. And having soldiers next to them who had a hook for a hand, lacing their boots up, not complaining. Like mm -hmm. it really, I think encourage the CEOs to step up and have this have the soldiers to really share their their expertise and feel confident in that. And my biggest takeaway, especially in the, a pretty male environment, as you can imagine, between mm -hmm. the CEOs and the um, soldiers about 10 years ago, was how much that confidence matters and how you could change, how just an experience like that could change how you, what you chose for yourself in the future, what you believed in yourself for the future, the kind, like the life you thought you deserved. And that was really powerful to me. It sounds, I don't know if it, how it sounds, but it's really stuck with me that so much of it, your life is up to you in a weird way. And it's both empowering and scary, I think. Right. It's a lot of responsibility in addition it's a to lot of it's a lot of responsibility, but it can always change. And I think being in this growth mindset is really, really an interesting and powerful thing. And so my experience with that taught me to, uh, or encouraged me rather to want to go to business school and kind of tackle harder problems. I think by that point, I was pretty fed up, Daryl. And as you know, Canadians are already like super bureaucratic. I was working a lot with government agencies and nonprofits. So it was not a lot of I felt like my hands were tied a lot and I was really curious about solving bigger problems. I was going to ask, because I'm the American in the group and I don't think we get a whole lot that's useful from our government. We get a lot of like useless things from our government <laughs> and then like useful things are like, no, no. So I was wondering if it was like emotionally taxing to be in that position of always like, no, but we need this. Yes. And it, it's, it's constantly, it's a really good point. It's just constantly a dance yeah. and you never... But it's always like, oh, it's kind of like you're always on another fact-finding mission. Like, oh, to get that, you have to go talk to this person and then right. talk to this person and talk to this person. And it just, it wasn't very intuitive and it was very frustrating. And so I wanted to learn, but, you know, I had done nonprofit for the past few years. I needed some critical business skills. So I went and applied to Northwestern University and got in for business there. And I, to be honest, I kind of struggled through. I thought like the courses were all really interesting and great, but I always felt like 
the non-traditional student. I didn't really know what I was good at. Even through the two years, I didn't really, I think it took me until pretty recently to figure out that like the things that I'm good at are not, they weren't the things that we were learning, right? Like I didn't have an actual aptitude for accounting. I didn't fit neatly in you know, if any management com- consultant company would have hired me, I would have jumped in the heartbeat, but like didn't have an aptitude for that either. But I did spend all my time, really free time reading about all these D2C companies that were coming out. Yeah. I always have loved physical products. I love culture. I think that's been like a big piece. That we, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but I think understanding culturally what's happening, I'm always really, really fascinated in it and its impact on our society. And so as you can imagine, all of that said through the two years, job hunting was a true disaster. I did not know how to market myself. I, you know, none of the traditional industries that were, were available, investment banking, management consulting appealed to me at all. And I wasn't very good at them. And it really wasn't until I met Andrew Dudem, who's our CEO and my co-founder, when I moved to San Francisco that I felt like I had something to offer. And we actually were introduced by a friend of ours and he thought I was coming in for a job to be a product manager. And I thought I was coming in to be a product marketing manager. And it was kind of one of those like meet cutes where in the first five minutes you're like, oh, this is not, we are not talking remotely the same language. And so <laughs> all of that just went out the window and we ended up just talking, I think for like an hour, hour and a half about things we thought that were interesting. And it was nice of him to continue to chat with me, but it turned out we had a lot in common about our value system, about the way we thought about companies we admired, brands we admired, the kinds of problems we wanted to tackle. And so I ended up joining the incubator, the venture fund design studio, which is an incubator and and venture fund called Atomic and working for him with one of his portfolio companies for a few months and is doing the entrepreneur in residence program as well, where you which program that Atomic runs, I think a couple of other venture runs or venture design studios run where you essentially explore a industry and see what opportunities there are in that industry. And I believe I looked into the bridal space, which is highly fragmented and highly <laughs> emotional and <laughs> troublesome. Um, yeah. But it really gave me the impetus to want to keep working on mushy problems and so this idea that had been floating around the ether at Atomic of, you know, the trends of having subscription businesses, the trends of wellness and self-care and like Birchbox was really, really hot at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then these incredible medications that were coming off patent, like Viagra, like Cialis, like Propecia, meant that there were a ton of different, there's just a ton of tailwinds happening that we couldn't ignore. And I think much like I often compare starting a company to being in love because I think it's just one of those things where it bites like it bites you and it makes no sense, but you can't stop thinking about it. You rearrange your life to suit it. It's very needy, requires naivete and optimism and just like kind of blind focus. But we just couldn't stop thinking about that. And I saw a lot of parallels between the work that I had done in the nonprofit space with helping people to feel good about themselves. And I thought it was fascinating. Like I didn't even know that if you were a man who's balding, there were options for you. I thought that was kind of like your lot in life. And it's really interesting when you think about how many people thought of that, because yeah, sure, there were medications out there, but you would need to have a doctor, one, which is like not a normal thing in America, as it turns out. You need to have a doctor who would prescribe it to you and then like have this the secret menu available to you. And you would have to have the disposable income to pay for it. All of these things are not a reasonable 
solution for the average person in this country. And the fact that we were able to be able to say to people, you know, you don't, you can choose a different alternative for yourself if that's what you want. You have options, you are in control. And I think overlaid with that is the fact that, you know, we're living in the age of the consumer. That's only, consumers only gotten more empowered over the past five years, which has been really exciting to see. But like, that's what they expect. We have digitally native generations that expect to know what they're going to pay. They expect to know what's going to happen, when things are going to arrive, what their options are. They come researched, they come prepared. Like that's all table stakes. And, you know, five years ago, four or five years ago, we started thinking about this. Healthcare didn't operate like that. If you had, I remember having a UTI and I had to cut my entire day because the doctor wouldn't talk to me. I had to go find somebody. I was in pain. I had to feel like just, it makes you feel like, I totally it doesn't make you feel like you're shiny. It's the worst. It's the worst. And it's there's something about it. And it's like so simple and too. It's like one pill. So simple. Like so simple. Oh. And you know what you, and you know what you need because you've had it before, but you still have to go in. And I remember just being like super irate uh, that day, like not getting what you want. And it's not even like, you're asking for a designer bag or a different life. Like you're just asking to not be feverish and in pain. And that had been pretty much my experience through living here in general. Like I when I moved to Northwestern, I remember going and getting going to like the campus pharmacy and asking for my birth control. And they were like, ma'am, it does not work that way. Cause I was always used to just going in and asking and getting what I wanted. And these are not luxuries, these are necessities. And I think that being denied something is a really, like, obviously disheartening experience. And it makes you question things. And I have a lot of privilege. And so from if that's my experience, I can only imagine, we can only imagine the experience for the majority of people in this country. Can we rewind a second? Because I, mm-hmm. you, you've sparked a question in me. Did the person that introduced you to your co-founder, was that someone that you knew through business school? Yeah. Okay. So th- was that like the main value you got out of business school? Because it sounded like otherwise there was, was like a lot a weird, there. Yeah. Like, it's, and I'm just curious because like startups are hiring people out of high school now. Like the necessity of college and particularly like graduate degrees is like, it doesn't seem to be trending. Right. And so I'm like so curious funny. your take, like, would you go back and not do that? Like what, you know? I think for me, I would go back 100%. I don't think it's right for a lot of people, though. I think for people like me who in undergrad majored in psych and Italian. Good job, Hillary. <laughs> like psych is useful, but questionable on the other stuff. <laughs> and then did nonprofit and then needed like a, I did need a baseline. I didn't have any business exposure and I use it all the time. But it's been funny because because I do use it all the time. Now I use, you know business strategy underlying everything that I do. It's like frameworks that have then been helpful for me because I didn't have that foundation. But it was interesting because when I moved to San Francisco, it was very much like, do not bring up that you have an MBA. Do not, because they have a horrible, we have a horrible reputation in this part of the world. And I think that, and that's the advice I give to a lot of MBA graduates who ask is like, there's no strategy. They all say the same thing. I want to come and I want to help at the strategy table. And I'm like, this is Twister. The table is whipping by your head. There is no strategy table. Like strategy is implementing in a smart way so you can out execute everybody else. Like that's what it is. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of the master programs today, I think, tell you how great you are during those two years. And they bring people on campus and it's so nice and they're so kind to you and you feel so special. But that's just the opposite in Silicon Valley. 
the value is different. So I think it's been like more nuanced, I think, how I've used it because I never promoted it about myself, but I certainly use it all the time. It's real skills, but it just, it's, it's not skills. like a credential yeah. in the way that. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Hillary, I'm pretty sure Daryl's graduate degree is in poetry. And that's right. My that undergraduate <laughs> double major was in creative writing and philosophy. Philosophy. I just want to clarify that. And that was from NYU. I, so I I wasted I that. I, don't I know. was trying to get it's the not. strategy table th- gig like you're talking about. And everyone's always like, it's not a real thing. I always like, where can I just, can I sit and like come up with the strategy? Jordan knows I say this to her all the time. I'm like, Jordan, can my job just be strategy? And she's like, no, that's nobody's job. That it's it should be job. nobody's anything, job. It's my job. I call myself the idea man. Because I don't execute <laughs> on anything. So, I mean, once you just saw the pieces put together, you were like, this is the right combination of everything. Is that what kind of was the... Yeah, was- I think we, there were all these market factors that were, you know, absolute slam dunks. There were medications that worked that were now affordable. The piece we didn't touch on yet is that legislation had changed so that people could actually see doctors licensed in their state asynchronously, which was massive, which means that you could fill out a questionnaire that took into account your history, your family background and your goals, and then the doctor could review it and talk with you for certain conditions. And so that obviously opened up because, you know, you're on a bus, you're on a couch, you're wherever you are, you don't have to take off work, you don't have to find childcare, you don't have to physically get to it, you don't have to find a doctor in network. Like, those are real barriers to accessibility that we were able to address. And then I would say, you know, we started out certainly with the men's space with sexual health and hair care, but it almost felt like, I don't know if you've ever had lice or like, I don't know, like termites in your foundation or something. It was just like every rock you uncovered, you were like, oh, this is so much worse than I thought. Like, this is terrible. That's how it felt like the more we learned about the healthcare system. I think we always thought there was like an adult in the room who was really asking these questions and pushing for the consumer and doing the best that they could. And there was nobody. Nobody was thinking about it. Nobody was trying to make it better. Nobody was challenging why, which I think is Andrew's real superpower is he's always been able to kind of come at it from a first principles and just be like, why? And we just kind of follow the line all the way up. And a lot of the times the answers at the end weren't satisfactory and allowed us to kind of go back and build it better. And then kind of the, the final piece I would say is that it started out as intuition, I believe, for us on the way that as a consumer's healthcare did not fit in our life. And it did, wasn't something we wanted to engage with. And it just didn't reflect the way we thought about our health. Like, you know, we were, we were out there using collagen powder and taking supplements and working out and all these things. And healthcare was still like, if, unless you're actively broken or bleeding, we're not going near it. Yeah. And that just didn't sit with us. It didn't sit with us. And I think like culturally, we could see that's where the world was going. But I do think it was more of an intuition of just like, no, this is not, this doesn't feel authentic to us. So we're going to build it the way we think is authentic. And now I think we have the confidence of a couple of years of under, under our belt, now being extremely considered and extremely thoughtful about building the worlds we would like to live in, which reflects again, the like this digitally native consumer and the way that they make their choices, right? Like they expect choice. They expect to have options. They expect transparency. They expect you to get them. And I, so I think like, where we've really excelled has been in understanding culture, because I think there's a lot of implicitly showing these generations that you understand them. Like it looks like a meme on social media, but really what you're saying is like, I understand you. I, you're, this is not a, a like a skinned, nice DTC site with the, the nice serif font yeah. that, you know, a big healthcare company is still hiding behind waiting to get you. Like 
this is us saying we understand the way you think about healthcare. And we're not trying to persuade you, right? Like we're it's we're, it's right, not it's like options. a it's not advertising. It's just like we're we're like you. We get you. Like come if you want, kind of thing. Right. And we're we're fighting against decades of poor care and no attempts to build trust and if anything like ero- massive erosion of trust. And so mm-hmm. it really matters so the fact that like we have these TikTok videos, the fact that we work with celebrities, the fact that we supplement star routines or add a shampoo, like these were things that people laughed at us for in the beginning, but we genuinely believe it's one of our moats is understanding the culture. And I think I saw a tweet this morning that I thought was so great from Ashley Mayer, Ashley Meyer, normally comms at Glossier, that said there's product market fit and then there's product moment fit. And I think we we really have and continue to have both. It's it's a mix of that. It's um, you know, in the past year, obviously the pandemic has been unprecedented time, and all of all of these mm-hmm. things. Thank you for and working that in, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> squirt, squirt one of my bingo card, please. That's a meme point for you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we saw broadly due to stress and due to COVID people were losing their hair at rates that they hadn't before. And specifically what was different is more women were reporting hair loss. And, you know, we think about men's hair loss as being hyper stigmatized and it is, um, but women's hair loss, at least men's hair loss, you you can see a stick on where people joke. It's a punchline. It's a joke. And I think we've started to normal. We've absolutely started to normalize it with him's and hers, but women's hair. So stigmatized hair loss is so stigmatized that people don't even joke about it. People don't talk about it. It's nowhere to be found. And we've 10x our women's hair loss business in the past 10 years. And I think part of that was being, you know, having the products, building up the correct regimens with our doctors and being ready for this cultural twist where people are actively suffering from a burgeoning condition and looking for that help. And so I think in those cases where like, yes, broadly, we've created an ecosystem where we have product market fit for consumers that want choice for consumers that want healthcare to feel like self-care. That's our motto. That's what we say. You want it to feel good. And that's why you're engaging with us. And so I think that, and then we also have this like product moment fit, which is being ready through the pandemic and saying, you know, we're not going to waste your time. We're not going to waste your money. We're here with products that actually work for you. And if you look Historically, at across all of our, our categories, the customers who come and see us, it's their first time ever seeking treatment. And I think that's like the real crux, again, of having this cultural understanding is you can have, I say this internally all the time, you can have the best restaurant with the best food, so great. But if your front door is scary, nobody is coming inside and it doesn't right. matter. Yeah. And I think that's where we really put a lot of focus is to be this front door. So however many entry points there are, we're going to be this friendly front door because that is how you get people to move. And that's how you get people to treat it. These products exist, but it doesn't matter if we're not going to talk about it. And I think that's, if you look at our brand and how destigmatizing and the humor and how we deploy those two things, that's really so we can get you to talk about it because sunlight is the best disinfectant and we can't help you treat it if you're not willing to come and talk about it. It's pretty important at this point to pause real quick. And I don't think I've ever done this on the podcast, but to just address the audience, because I think a lot of the things that you just said are essentially the exact ingredients necessary to start a company, right? Like you talked about falling in love, right? And that like kind of passion that makes it impossible to not think about it. You talked about, I call it a secret, but you kind of boiled down to why now and why us, right? Like that Andrew continually asks why until you get to the the top of the food chain. And these little secrets of 
you know, the legislation had changed, the drugs were coming off of patent, right? And that we actually get the, the customer. And without those things, I feel like founders journey off without those three pieces that are so, so critically important. And I just, I feel like you boiled it all down in a way that was really easy to understand. And it's important to kind of like put a stamp on it in this episode in particular, because yeah, it just seems like really useful kind of way to think about like a framework. I'm sure you learned it in business school of how to think about starting a company, right? Like those are critical pieces. So Daryl, one thing that I think would be cool to tell our audience about is Disrupt, which is coming up pretty soon, September 21st through 23rd. It's totally virtual, more accessible than ever. Are you excited? I'm very excited. And because it's so virtual, everybody here listening can attend. That's great news. And not only that, you can attend on the cheap because we actually have a code for you. So if you go to buy tickets to Disrupt and you use the code FOUND, which is the name of this podcast, you can get your tickets for 20 bucks. Wow. Which I shouldn't have to tell you that's a steal. These tickets, when it's virtual, normally go for hundreds of dollars. And when it's not virtual, they go for thousands of dollars. So a $20 ticket to Disrupt for three days of content, networking, start a battlefield, start a valley. That's a great deal. Some things that you could look forward to. We've got two stages. On our Disrupt stage, we're going to be talking to people like Ryan Reynolds, Melanie Perkins, who's the CEO of Canva, Stuart Butterfield, and Brett Taylor are actually going to be there to talk about the mega acquisition, Slack and Salesforce, Callan Lee's Tope Awatona. Also Seth Rogen. Yes. If you're more in the Hollywood bent. So for founders who are in the audience, which should be you, this is found after all, we have some amazing sessions on our extra crunch stage. It's really an educational resource. And those include how to raise your first dollars, how to spend the first check you get when you're fundraising, how to sign your first three B2B customers, which is seems useful, and then also how to iterate your product. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And of course, you get Startup Battlefield, which is the marquee startup competition in the world. I can say that without sarcasm. It is. And of course, it wouldn't be Disrupt if you couldn't network. And it's free to all attendees. So all you have to do is get that $20 ticket and you're meeting new people. $20. Again, can't beat it. And yet there's only one way to get that, though. Remember, you got to use promo code FOUND. Don't forget, Disrupt goes down September 21st through 23rd. And we really hope to see you there. How big was the vision to begin with? How much of it was building the bridge as you were crossing it? Like, you know, you started with a very specific focus, like men's sexual health. And then at that time, did you know, like, oh, you want to expand to to like a lot more general telehealth? Did you know all that was in the works? Or were you just kind of like, this might be a big enough market on its own and let's see what we can do here? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first call it 60 days where we were exploring the it was specifically the hair care space in the early early days of our mvp that was when we the more question the more calls we got on with experts the more we dug in the more we tried to you know talk to lawyers about the legislation where everything was happening that's when we had that like termites in the foundation moment where we were like oh we're not building a hair care company we're building a healthcare company like this is would be irresponsible for us, knowing what we know to not stand our mandate. And we actually bought both URLs for hers and for him's at the same time. So it was always that core idea that we would have, again, as many front doors as possible for people. And we were really thoughtful about the order that we launched them in, in that with him's 
you know, we launched uh, November 2017 with both um, sexual health and hair loss. And with hers, we launched the exact same day a year later. And that was very intentional because the products we wanted to offer were things like birth control, where you, you need to hit your date of delivery for the customer. You need to make sure there is a doctor available. All of those things that could not suffer in the way that a first year growth stage company may have suffered, right? Like we certainly, we were, you know, we had an incredible first month of, of sales and blew through months of our inventory and, you know, had to put things, take things off the site and stop advertising and these things. That's not, once you make a commitment to somebody for their birth control, that's not something that you can ever renege on. And so it was really important for us to understand our, de- our demand to build out a really thoughtful and strong supply chain. And our COO, Melissa, who joined shortly after we launched and is still um, with us today, has been incredible at, at um, implementing. So that order of operations was really, really key in ensuring that we built that really strong foundation with HIMS, so that with hers, we were offering the quality and the experience that we set out to do in our mission. I do wonder... Do you have plans for like, what about for gender non-conforming patients and stuff like that? Like, is that, do you have a non-binary URL uh, reserve? What I can say is that we are, I think what is core and what we want people to feel when they come to any of the platforms, him, hers, apostrophe in our, in our platform, that they feel recognized and seen and have that power to choose which door they would like to enter in order to take the best care of themselves and so they feel comfortable in that and so you know that combination of feeling recognized and seen and the power of choosing means that our strategy to date and in future will always be to expand as many front doors as possible because we believe we are uniquely good at creating a relationship with the consumer and meeting them where they are and so back to our awareness of culture we absolutely understand that there is that is going to be fluid and that's going to be expanding as we go. And so it's something we're constantly thinking about and exploring. And our mandate really comes down to having as many front doors so that you have a way to treat yourself for whatever condition that you need help with. Okay, that's a very long answer to that. I think ends up with like, yes, but we're not exactly yeah, sure what well, it looks like. <laughs> probably. Um, so... I have a question that veers off of that entirely, which is about competition, right? Because you guys weren't the only ones to figure out some of these secrets. And even if you, like, I'm sure that this is, maybe this is something you've Googled, maybe not. I just did a quick Google of Roe versus Hymns. And there are several articles that are like, oh, like, thank God Hymns copied Roe because they're so much better, which is nice. Mm. But like, how did you guys think wow. about that? And how much time do you spend thinking about competition? Because healthcare is huge, right? Is that not like the biggest industry in the US or is it home development? It's gotta be way up there. So there's space, but like, does it drive you crazy? Do you think about it? No? No, we don't have time to think about it. Healthcare is <laughs> a $4 trillion industry, as you pointed out. It's yeah. the last major industry to be disrupted. So there's an incredible amount of space. And I think we feel really confident in our particular mandate and our particular mission and our ability to reach younger generations of consumers and reflect a health a world of healthcare and wellness that does not exist today and that did not exist before us. And, and so I think our ability to understand cultural trends, our ability to create products that offer the maximum amount of choice. Again, like we have both non-RX products, we're in Target, 
we are it's the target and brick and mortar. And in addition to having services directly linked to your doctor or prescription products online. And again, this brand that is very destigmatizing and invites people who've never sought treatment before to take care of themselves. And I think once you have, once you prove that you can do that as a consumer and you feel good and it wasn't as hard as you thought, the number one thing we hear from our consumers is that they wish they started sooner. And I think we have a lot of confidence and a lot of focus on that particular consumer and building and growing and deepening our relationship with them. I have another question that's kind of related, but not really, but it's just like, it's another Canadian question because I was thinking about it just today. If I'm sick or whatever, and, and I just go and I go to the doctor and then they tell me my, my GP is like, Oh yeah. I mean, I think you should see specialist XYZ. And then I go see specialist XYZ and they're like, Oh yeah, I think you have thing wide. And then they prescribe a treatment. And at no time does anyone ever bring up money. Like imagine how much of a relief that is that it just never even comes up. It's crazy to me to imagine. I can't. I literally an alternative. Like, 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 I know. And it's crazy like, for you. I to can't imagine, imagine that money comes up. I can't imagine what it would be like to not have that come up, to not have that be right. like one of the earlier thoughts. I mean, we have pretty good benefits, but like if I ever like broke my arm, I'd be like, Oh man. Well, you would th- at some point there would be a bill and like who pays it is, is, you know, you're in a privileged position where you don't it was probably have to pay. First it, thoughts I had when I got appendicitis, I was in college. That's terrifying. First day of school. My junior year was tomorrow and my friend did the little push test on me, you know, where you push someone's belly and if you let go and it hurts more, that's probably appendicitis. And she did it and I yelled and she said, you have to go to the ER, you have appendicitis. And I like spent a full 10 minutes sitting there in her apartment being like, do I? Yeah, like, Oof. do I, you know, like, and it, of course, well, it's you fine. I was on my dad's insurance <laughs> and like everything is fine. And it got, yeah. but I come from a place of privilege. Like, that's not everyone's experience. It's crazy. Yeah. But how has it been for you, Hillary? Like, I know, because I've talked to a lot of founders about this and like, most of them are coming from the American context, right? So they kind of are like, well, this is the way that it is, right? But like, at some point, do you say, isn't there more that we could do to to make to make it customer centric that goes beyond? I know that it's hard to impact legislation, but like, at one point, do you ever think like, oh man, I wish I could be doing more, especially with your background as from like a not for profit or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think we think about that. We absolutely think about that all the time, and I think that's it with everything from our government relations team to our customer service team to our supply chain. Like all of the teams are working towards providing the best possible future for the consumer. And we really truly believe that we are building a world that we would, we would like to live in in the future and we would like to raise our kids in in the future. And I think what has been really helpful is that Andrew and I didn't come from healthcare. So we don't have those frameworks in place that are like, Oh, you stepped outside the plate. This is like outside the sandbox. No one does that. Just continue on how it is. Or why don't you slightly pivot this thing that exists already today? And then you can kind of have a Franken solution. Like we don't do any of that. We're not starting from something that exists. We are starting from something that does not currently exist today and that we are building for. And so every time that we have conversations with people, and especially in the early days, when we'd have conversations with experts or people who truly laughed in our face at what we wanted to accomplish or manufacture or whatever we were doing, it was because we we knew there was a better way, partly because of my experience. Like, you can't tell me that this is impossible when there are however many countries that operate in the exact opposite way as the U.S. So I think being able to have that 
very clearly in my head of saying, actually, I grew up with 25 years of this. I know it's possible and I know where we can get to. I think helps Jordan back to your point on your vision as a founder and having that really core belief that is authentic to you and being and staying really true to that. I think that's been really sustaining for us because we're not trying to just like marginally change the existing healthcare system. We're trying to entirely recreate it. One day I just want a founder to be like, no, I think we should, <laughs> I think we should make healthcare public, but I don't think anyone's going to say that outright uh, to me, especially when they're working in the private healthcare industry. But I don't know. I don't know. Everyone should just be like Dream Canada, big, right, Gerald? Dream big, my friend. <laughs> I think, but I also think with Canada, you know, like there's, there's the problems. Canadian system yeah. works for the eighty percent of the uncomplicated yes people. God forbid anything happens to you out in that twenty percent, though, and there will come a time in your life where you are the twenty percent, and in that case, that is again when the bureaucracy can be challenging having my whole family still lives in Canada and having people with Alzheimer's people with cancer figuring that out you can't it's difficult to know that you are dealing with a time sensitive illness and be told that there's absolutely no way that the first MRI will be at 3 a.m in six months yeah because of the the lack of incentives around kind of like expediting or like providing a different path to access yeah like you can have sort of like Things where even life-threatening things can happen, or like you know, it, you can die because you're waiting for something, right? Which is totally. which is horrible, but yeah. And even the situation you describes of you know, you go to your your doctor, and a lot of the times in Canada, I think they do a brilliant job in telemedicine in the U.S. starting to borrow from this. Of you are first seen by a nurse practitioner, or a physician, physician's assistant, because they have all of the same powers, really, for most of the uncomplicated conditions. But then you're re- if you have to be referred to a specialist, you are still, the onus is really continues to be on the consumer. And I think in some ways that can be good, but in other ways, there's all these disparate pieces of your health, your dental health, your mental health, your physical health that could benefit, I think. And if you look at the South Korean system, they operate with it like this. We're having, they, mm-hmm. they have a coordinator who looks at everything. And helps you navigate that system. And I don't think that we think about healthcare like that. And I think that's the way that I don't think our parents and grandparents thought about it like that. But I do think that's the way we are seeing people in this generation and, and younger generations, you know, orient themselves towards that healthcare yeah. should be this mix of how are my teeth? Did I sleep last night? Do I have insomnia? How's it going? What did I eat today? You know, what what's my back pain? Like all of these things makes up thriving a thriving life and i know the the term thrive is like overused and can be cheesy and all those things but no no it's genuinely i think that's a real word that has real that's what we hear (laughs) we're fine with real words yeah (laughs) you start making them up and adding like an eo to the end that we start getting annoyed like a double vowel or taking out all the vowels yeah yeah yeah, yeah, nothing in between a little fresh but that makes tons of sense because our system for all of its benefits is also like a lot of things in Canadian infrastructure is ossified, right? It's kind of like based in a, a set of agreements that we made a long time ago and they're very entrenched uh, and there's very little incentive to reevaluate them at any time, right? So the benefit that you have, especially at this moment right now in healthcare in the US is there's a lot of fluidity and there's a lot of capital available and changing incentive structures that help kind of like recenter the conversation of health around the, the consumer or the patient, right? Which is nice. Totally. And as you point out, we have so much to do. Like we genuinely believe we're just 
in the first inning here because there's so much that needs improvement. There's so much that doesn't exist today in any country. And then again, I know I've gone back to it all the time, but that cultural piece of, well, how is Gen Z going to think about their chronic health? What are the influencing factors that are going to impact the decisions that consumers make 10 and 20 years from now? How did you how did you become a boss over all those years? Like, how did you go from like turning your theory into practice when you got out of school and you started this business? And then all of a sudden, I don't know how big Hims and Hers is now, but it's probably pretty big. So you're managing however many people like I know that's a huge question, but people love management. We're also really, really bad at being managers. And we're bad at managers. So we're like so we want the advice. Yeah. Clinging to the little bits. I don't think managing is an actual skill set, to be honest with you. I think <laughs> I think for somebody to come out, if you think like back in like Roman centurion times, for someone to be like 15 and they'd be like, and to say, you're going to be in charge of like a battalion of 1500 people. Like you got to be a little weird to be like, I'm qualified for that. And so I think I'm still figuring it out transparently as we are. And also this is just prying deep into my imposter syndrome. So thanks. I'll just spiral about this afterwards. Um <laughs> But I think the most valuable thing I can say, looking back on it, is that your company will change significantly every six to nine months and what it needs from you will be very different. And I think it can be very difficult to release what you brought value to the company for and embrace what that comp- what the company needs from you next. And it requires a ton of flexibility and low ego and low emotion. And those are things that you probably needed high amounts of all of them to get to that place. And so being, you know, we all talk about growth mindset and we all talk about how comfortable we are in ambiguity, but when it comes down to it and when you have so much invested in it emotionally and obviously financially and all those things, it's very difficult to do in practice. And so I think like the first time I needed to switch very much from doing everything to doing less and realizing that it didn't, you know, it kind of shook me to my core. And I heard that from a lot of people where you go from, you know, physically contributing all of these things and wearing all of these hats, which is like another good bingo term, you know, wearing so many hats in a startup and realizing that like your value is actually stepping back and hiring people who are more qualified than you to do a better job than you. And that is still valuable. And that doesn't mean you're, you're useless now. And I think that that, you know, that was my first big change, but I've, had to do that every six to nine months from. And so I would just say that that's entirely normal. And ideally you get to a place where you can proactively see it before it hits you. It happens to you. Yeah. (laughs) It happens to you, but it's always, I do think it's difficult and emotional. And the best thing you can do is just be open and proactive as best you can because it's normal. I feel that. I feel that. Me and Jordan both have had that experience and talked about it quite a bit with formally writing lots of stuff, no longer writing basically anything and having to let go of that rope. Right. It hits directly at your self-efficacy. Instant gratification of doing like seven things a day and pressing publish and then being like, oh, all of my goals are subjective and way out in the future. It's really annoying. But equally valuable, I think. Yes. You know, at, more the, end of, at the end of your life, <laughs> the most valuable, I tell you all. <laughs> I think at the end of your life, like what you did, it's kind of binary, right? Like you lived or you didn't. I mean, we lived. And I think we attach sometimes too much value to how that comes out and how that manifests. 
All right, that was our conversation with Hillary. Jordan, how did you feel about that chat? I felt great about it. I really liked Hillary. And I felt like we were all having a lot of fun. We were all good friends by the end of it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I felt odd being like the only American. But other than that, I feel like I learned a lot. And I also feel like Hillary did a really, she's a pretty excellent communicator, which is a bit of a double-edged sword. It could be like, oh, a little media trained, a little polished, but I actually think that she opened up and shared some things with us that are really important. And she also did a really good job of like boiling things down to what matters the most. I think particularly when she was talking about how hymns and hers launched and kind of like what it took for that founding team to figure out the secrets to the market and to have that kind of passion and drive and execute on it in interesting ways. I thought it was really clear, right? And founders could use that kind of guidance. Hims and hers, big brand. They've used humor very effectively. They connected very effectively with their audience. And I guess that's a lot down to her, given her specific role. But it's it's really impressive to see them continue to kind of like carve this out just by virtue of being like, guess what? There's a whole way to talk to people and patients that no one has tried yet, and we're going to continue doing it. And I think that was also super impressive about their approach. Yeah, I really liked when she was talking about having as many front doors as possible, making sure they look pretty and inviting and welcoming. Again, like really amazing kind of metaphors and crisp communication to get across what could feel daunting, right, for a founder. It's like, oh, this metaphor could actually like simplify kind of what you're doing. So I think there's a lot of nuggets in this one. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. And I think some of the metaphors she used were like compelling even to me as someone who has not really ever had a huge hankering to start a company of my own. But like when she was talking about how it's like falling in love, it's like, that's a good way to make something feel appealing, right? Because young love, who doesn't like that? That's a great time. Well, and it like also gives you this like litmus test for yourself as a, as an aspiring founder, if you're like, okay. I really want to start this business, but like, how do I actually feel about it? Right. And it's something I think most people have fallen in love. Maybe it wasn't requited. Maybe it didn't work out, but that feeling of like, I cannot stop thinking about this. I cannot, it, you know, it brings a smile to my face. I just I'm thinking about the future of it. I'm thinking about right now and it's pretty overwhelming. And I think that's an interesting way to think about starting a company is, as a litmus test of, is this just taking up all of your mental and emotional energy? Because if it is, you probably should pour yourself into it, you know? Right. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited by Grace Mendenhall, and Maggie Stamitz is our associate producer. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Our guest this week was Hillary Coles, co-founder and senior vice president of brand and innovation at Hims and Hers. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.